Champions, welcome to the Chessmode podcast. My guest today is one of the world's leading experts on the mental game and peak performance. He has worked with some of the legends in sports like Kobe Bryant, Cristiano Ronaldo and Rafael Nadal. After two decades of coaching elite athletes, business leaders and public figures, he authored the Wall Street Journal best-selling book The Alter Ego Effect, The Power of Secret Identities to Transform Your Life. About which Kobe said, this guy gets it and this book is what I did to dominate on the court. Joining us today on the Chess Mode podcast is one and only Todd Herman. Not a chess grandmaster, but definitely a grandmaster in mental game. I can't wait to learn how he helped Kobe create Black Mamba Ultra Ego, what are the things that top athletes do differently, and what are the techniques that we chess players can use to enhance our performance. A disclaimer, Ultra Ego is an advanced topic, but if you stay open-minded and are fine to listen to things that might be against your beliefs, this concept can be a game changer for you. Ready? Let's dive in. Hey man, thank you very much for accepting the invitation. I'm excited to come in and talk to you and your community. Super. Uh, what's your name today? A strange question. For this interview? It's Super Richard. Super Richard. Okay, so in your book, I have found Richard. Uh, your name is Todd and now Super Richard. Um, yes. Today, when I was talking to Tim and I understand what is Alter Ego, but uh, when I try to explain it in a simple language that five years old kid can understand, I understood that I don't very well understand what is it. Please help me what is altering going simple language i'll give you the language of the person who actually coined the term who was um widely regarded as one of the greatest roman statesmen and philosophers to ever live cicero and he was writing a letter to a friend who was asking him about his successes in life and how he was able to achieve them and he was responding back to that friend and he talked about this alter ego that uh, concept that he embraced. And he said it beautifully when he said, an alter ego is the other I or trusted friend within. So we all use mental models and pictures to help us navigate life. And we, you and I both know, I mean, this is actually your world. You're here to help mentor and coach and encourage other people in their development of their chess play, right? And so the people that are, you know, consuming your world, they see that as being valuable. And we all know the value of having great friends and having a great wife or a great husband or a great significant other. And we know the importance of having all these people around us that can help us navigate life successfully, except people don't think about the six inches between their own ears and that there is an entire world within us that we can invite other people, other mentors to come into our own mind and use them as a model or as a tool to have a conversation inside of our own minds with um, other people that inspire us. And so that alter ego is a very deliberate, intentional practice of inviting mentors into our own mind 
to be that trusted friend within and to use as a model for how we want to move towards a new idea of who we are. Say deliberate practice, but I think there will be people who will do this without understanding what they are doing and still get some effect, right? Absolutely. You're, you're so right. Like, which gets to my point in the book, the alter ego effect, when I say that the great thing about this concept is everyone's already done it. Everyone's already used this because we did this very naturally as kids when we would play and, and we can get into the science of that and why we, why our brain is actually structured to do that in, in just a few seconds. But we do that very naturally when we're playing, you know, um, uh, cops and robbers with our, uh, friends, or we're playing, um, you're Batman, I'm Superman, and we're going to fight. And so we take on the traits and the characteristics. And that's not strange to kids. They, that's just so normal. That's a part of their play. But one of the reasons why they do that is because when we're young, actually before the age of eight, we don't have a concept of me. There is no me that I understand as a child. There's just this body that I have that's engaged in activities. And it's, that's extremely useful because at a young age, human beings, we need to be sponges and we need to soak up as much as we can around the world around us so that we can learn how to operate. And if we had this frontal lobe part, which is where um, cognitive reasoning and judgment skills sits, if we had that active, because it's not active very much in, the young, uh, in our young ages, we would be putting up a brick wall of learning around us because that reasoning and judgment skill stops us from, and we start to contemplate things and we judge it and we reason with it. But when you're young, you're so engaged with your creative mind, which means you're extremely playful. And when you're extremely playful, you're very, very flexible and adaptable with how you see yourself. And so this concept is something everyone has already used because we did it as kids. And now all I do is when I'm taking a look at developing elite performers, helping people become champions and legends in their own discipline or their own area that they're trying to focus on, um, I think it's important to invite people into already existing concepts that the brain doesn't need to invent and you and I had talked about affirmations last week, and we could probably get into that as well, and the importance of how that is, it's, it can be dangerous for some people to use that concept. Um, and so I like to use science-backed approaches, leveraging also what I think is our really our main superpower in life as human beings, which is our creative imagination, which is, you know, the world of chess is very strategic, but that's the one place that most people will get it wrong in the world of chess is there's also a layer of creativity. And I think that the best, best, best grandmasters that ever played knew how to be creative. And that's what made them special. Um, I want to tell you one story about, like, I'm absolutely agree that most of the world including chess world and including myself for a long time myself, I didn't understand the power of mindset and that sometimes you can just read few books, do few things, and you can get more effect than just studying hundreds of chess books. The story I want to tell you was about a, a kid I, wo I worked with. He was 14 years old. 
he was very strong from India, uh, international master, and he was going to become a grandmaster. So he had already one grandmaster norm, and he needed another two norms and 2,500 ratings, and you are a grandmaster. And their parents asked me for, for the help. Um, the kid was extremely strong at chess, and I was super surprised how 14 years old can have such a chess understanding, deep understanding. So clearly, his coaches had done a fantastic job. His problem was psychological. So most of the time, through chess, I would work with him through this psychological thing. Uh, once he started to call me, instead of coach or mister, as he, as he would normally call me, he called me Mr. Yinsen. Do you know who is Mr. Yinsen? Can you recall it? No. From Iron Man. Oh, yes. So, so in the Iron Man movie, I didn't know that movie. Uh, there is uh, the Iron Man character and there is Mr. Instant who is helping Iron Man to prepare all his stuff. Yes. yes. Like, what? Why are you calling me Mr. E Mr. Instant? He explained me all that stuff and it's like, you should watch that movie, the Iron Man movie. Like, <laughs> come on, it's like fantasy movie. It's not my style. I'm not going to watch it. No, yeah. no. But every day he would still keep me, call me Mr. Instant, Mr. Instant. At the end he said, if I become a grandmaster, what will you do for me? I said, whatever you want. And said, will you watch the Iron Man? I said, of course. And then uh, he was also uh, studying Spanish. And for iron, there is a word plan plancha or planchar. And we made for him a word planchito. So the planchito was his way of Iron Man. What happened with, me, with him, it was unexplainable. We, I was not familiar with your work. We didn't that totems with deliberately activating that uh, alter ego. We didn't anything. Just he, he thought his iron, uh, his planchito. I was his mystery insan. In a few months, he made his two grandmaster norm. He started to play a fantastic chess, made everything, made 2500 rating, and then called me, coach. I made my GM, now it's your turn to watch Iron Man. So I went back <laughs> and it was the day when I watched uh, that movie. So that was the first time I really faced that phenomenon for me, like in the real life. And then when I wrote that uh, uh, legal cheating article and descri describing the article, how sometimes I use that, not as, as you described in the book, and then James told about you, and then I bought immediately your book. I got just fascinated about this topic. How something like that, that many people are like, what is this? It's hocus pocus or what? How that can just unlock and transform our careers? I got chills. I just got chills from that. I love those stories. Like, especially when someone comes by it very naturally. Like, this is... Yes, I'm giving like in the book, I talk about the science behind it. I give people lots of examples around um, people that have used alter egos. And I've built out tens of thousands of alter egos over the last 20 years. Again, like I started my peak performance and mental game coaching and training company in 1997. Um, I built the Black Mamba with Kobe Bryant. Um, and we can kind of maybe talk about that and like why he needed the Black Mamba as well. Because it's, it, it's a... 
it's one of those stories that resonates with other people because it's, it's actually a very universal story of any hero that goes on a journey. But, um, in, and then in the book, I give people the method of like, Hey, this is how you do it. This is how you take control of your creative imagination and you intentionally, um, start showing up at that way. But what I love about, um, your client and calling you Mr. Yinsen is what he's doing is so brilliant and smart because he's using, we all use, we just talked about it. The purpose of the alter ego is the other I or trusted friend within. We build worlds for ourselves. He's now building a world and he's now calling mm. you Mr. Yinsen, which is the mentor mm. and the helper to help get this person to where he needs to go to, to craft and build the Iron Man, which is his alter ego essentially that he's using. But the brilliance of that is um, he's he's using his own language to turn you into an alter wow. ego for him. Wow. And all that without understanding. Yeah, that's like I would call him a grandmaster at alter egos and and building that world out. It's it's so smart. And I, I do the same thing with my kids. Um and they're still very young, but when I'm outside and I'm helping them with their sports, I won't let them call me dad because I want, I'm going to take on the role of coach for them. And for me, um, and I talk about this many times, I own a software company called UpCoach and um, I talk about, you know, I love coaching. And yes, I run different, I run companies and trainings and stuff, but I still do one-on-one -on -one coaching like you do because I feel like the moment you stop getting away from the actual action on the field of play and I stopped coaching and I was just like writing books or something, I'm missing out on all the nuance. Like that's really important stuff. It's like you, if you stopped coaching chess players right now, there's going to be little innovations that you're going to miss out on that people are doing in the chess world. And nowadays yeah so, absolutely so anyways like being out there with my kids and coaching them um i get them to pick a character from any one of their shows that they that might be a teacher in a show that they like or it's a character in a movie that they like and that and i take on that role as that character for them so i'm you know their coach and they call me that name and but it's always coach in front of the name um and it's a lot, but it allows us to be more playful and more fun because I also want to protect my role as dad for them. Because when you are a coach, you need to push, you need to push people, right? You need, you need to push them. You got to be, you do have to be tough with them. You got to encourage as well, but I want to protect my role as dad in their mind. And so I, we do this very intentionally where no, when I'm going to go out there and coach you now, let's, it's going to be coach dad. I put on a hat. I don't go out there with my glasses on or something like that. It's coach dad. I have a hat that I wear and stuff like that. And it's just, it's just more fun too. It's it absolutely fine to have multiple identities. Absolutely. It's natural because we already do anyway. Um, so there was, um, one of the uh, one of the five kind of core principles in the world of psychology that was the foundation of the psychological world and the, their discipline was the idea that the people who had the healthiest sense of self, the people who had the lowest rates of depression, anxiety, and stress disorders, um, had what they called a single self, 
a single identity that operated in their world, wherever they went. Now, that makes sense. You hear that and you go, okay, well, that makes sense. But it's not true because I would take a look at my athletes and, you know, a football player who's out there, an American football player um, who's out there playing. They've got rage. They've got anger. There's violence out there. And they construct themselves to be a certain way to go be successful on that field. But when they come off the field, the ones who would function the worst in society wouldn't separate themselves from that identity out there. So the ones who like, that makes sense. People are like, oh yeah, when I compete in sport, I am a different person. Like, or is it a different way that I show up? And then when I'm around my wife or significant other, I'm a different person. Or when I'm with my friends, I'm slightly different. And I'm like, yeah, it's supposed to be that way because your environment, your context changes how you show up. And so then the world of psychology in 2008 did a complete reversal. So you got to remember 80 years, they had said one identity is the healthiest. And now me, I'm a field of play guy. I'm practical. I'm pragmatic. I'm on the field. And I'm like, that world of psychology is full of bunk. Like there's a lot of crap in the world of psychology because it's not a scientific discipline as much as everyone thinks it is. And so in the, in the year 2008, they completely reversed it and said, um, the people who identify as having many selves, many identities have the lowest rates of depression, anxiety, and stress disorder. And that was only exactly what my experience was with my athletes. I was like, no, this is who you are, Kobe, when you're out there. But when you come off that court, we need a different Kobe for your kids. They can't be black. You can't be black Mamba around your kids. There needs to be a different side of you. And that's something he never talked about. But we intentionally created another identity for him as a father at home as well. I'm not going to get into it because Kobe's passed away. But um, that's extremely important is yes, you can have many identities. And then if you want, you can use the inspiration of an alter ego or a model in your own mind to help you show up in the way that you most want on that uh, field or in that role for you. So when people say she's a great person or he's a good someone, like he's very, they are very yeah. authentic. What do you feel about when you hear this word, this word authentic? It doesn't exist. Well, Strange word. It's, it's a hard word to kind of use on a human being because um, in its kind of root form for how the word is used today, um, authentic is used to describe objects, right? So is that an authentic Ralph Lauren shirt that you have on? Or is that an authentic Louis Vuitton bag? Or is that an authentic Fabergé egg over there? We, we, we can, and that makes sense because really we're saying is like, is that real or is that a fake? We can't do that with human beings because we're not objects. We're subjects. This person, this being that's here changes its base. It changes itself based on the context of the world that it's in. And so I understand why people are wanting to say the word authentic, but we're using it in a way that traps people. That's the key because the idea that there is one authentic you is wrong. There is an authentic version of me that I'm trying to bring into uh, my world of coaching. There's an authentic version of me that I'm trying to bring onto a stage when I'm speaking 
there's an authentic version of me that's I'm trying to bring to my kids and all of and and so what is the word authentic mean within me it means I know I'm being authentic to dad when I'm honoring the five traits and qualities that I want to bring to being a dad which is patient kindness loving encouraging and fun those are my five traits that I'm trying to bring as being a good dad to my kids. When you are coach, they are totally different. Yes. Yes. And so when you say, oh, Todd's very authentic, I don't care if someone says that. I mean, it's nice if they feel that way about me, but I'm not going to use other people's words to define myself. And so if if you said, oh, I just, you wouldn't really say it this way, but I when someone says, Oh, like Avatech is just so authentic. What they mean is they had a very real experience with you. Mm-hmm. There was a connection that was there. Like they, they connected with you some somewhere. And in that moment, you know, whether you were bringing all of your best traits in that moment or you weren't bringing all of your best traits, the only thing that matters is that person's experience of you to them felt very real and authentic. But I love it when people are around me and they go, wow, you're so different around your kids. And I'm like, yeah, I'm supposed to be that way because I would hope that you would be too because I know you as CEO person. I hope you don't bring those same traits to your kids because I don't want my kids to experience me as the challenger coach type because I have to like, again, have like I'm working with really massive personalities, really big egos, Cristiano Ronaldo, Kobe Bryant, you know, Rafael Nadal. CEOs, you know, leaders, entrepreneurs, like all, all sorts of types, people in Hollywood. And there's some people who come with very big egos. And me as a coach, I'm not a fan. Like I love sports and I, and I like being a fan of someone going out and doing amazing things, just like you would with the, the young kid who became a grandmaster. Like I'm a, like I'm a fan of that kid now because of the way that he went about doing that. But in my professional life, when you're coming to me, like it's because you want something from me. And if I was a fan to you, that wouldn't work. Yeah. So I need to, and they come with very big egos and they have very hard exteriors because they're protecting themselves from society and culture because a lot of people just want stuff from them. Um, but I need to make them feel safe, know that I'm trusted and uh, I need to sometimes have a very hard exterior. And so I'm a challenger coach with people. I don't want to be that way with my kids all the time. No, I absolutely understand. And I see all the time people getting uh, wrapped up in their past player identity to themselves. And they, mm-hmm. and when they fail, they feel they fail totally in, in all their lives. And I can imagine yeah. how useful will be this old ego concept for, for them. But first, I want you uh, to tell me, it's going to be very interesting, how did you meet Kobe? And why yeah. he needed, how it came to the moment when like, I need Ultrigo and how you together created yeah. his Black Mamba. So um, in 2003, uh, Kobe Bryant was getting charged um, with sexual assault in a case in um, Colorado. Uh, it was during the summertime and it was, you know, just a media fury around him. And now at the time, 
leading up to that in in Kobe's early career, the thing that kind of worked really well for him as an identity was um, an innocence, uh, an innocent identity. Because he came into the, he's one of the few people who came into the NBA out of high school. He didn't even go to college, university. He went from high school straight to the NBA. So here he is. He's 18 years old, you know, and um, people gave him a lot of um, uh, kind of leeway and latitude because he was such a young kid. So now five years into his career, six years into his career, this case comes up and um, he got connected to my, one of my mentors, Harvey Dorfman. And Harvey Dorfman wrote the book, Coaching the Mental Game. He wrote many other books. He's called the Yoda of baseball um, to give another alter ego to someone. Everyone called him the Yoda of baseball. Many of the absolute best players in baseball would, you know, come to see Harvey during the off season to, you know, kind of, you know, clear the cobwebs out of their head and get their uh, game straight. And so I had uh, mentored with Harvey a few years before that, and we were very close and stayed in touch. And so Kobe reaches out to Harvey um, through a friend, and Harvey gets on the phone with uh, Kobe, and Kobe's describing what's happening, and he says, I feel like I'm losing my edge. Okay. Now, let's pull back for a second. Have just to the, I'll talk to the um, person who's listening right now. Is there any moments in your life where you feel like you're, you're losing your edge? You've, you've, been, you've had confidence and you've had success, um, or you're going into a brand new world or field. You're moving somewhere. There's a new transition that's happening. You're becoming a dad or a husband or a wife, or you're starting a new job, et cetera. And it can challenge people's sense of identity. Like, am I good enough? How can I do this? Okay, so Kobe was going through that, you know, and he says, hey, I feel like I'm losing my edge. And Harvey asks him a few more questions. And then Harvey said to him, no, you're not losing your edge. You're going through an ego death, which is very deep. An ego death. There's times in any story of a hero that goes on a journey where something happens in the story, it happens in Star Wars, it happens in Harry Potter, it happens in movies, where there's sometimes something so challenging happens to the character that they need to reconcile the fact that their ego just died. Who they think that they are is now gone. And the longer you try to hold on to that, you're only going to frustrate yourself and depress yourself, really. And so what Kobe was doing was he had been playing the innocent character for such a long time because he was so young. And yes, he was a killer when he was on the court, but his, his kind of social persona was that of being an innocent kid who's out there being successful in the NBA. And now he just got charged with sexual assault. His, this ego that was constructed, the innocent ego, was dead. It wasn't there anymore. He, he wouldn't be able to operate through that, you know, sort of innocent self anymore. And so Harvey said, you're going through an ego death. Um, and he said, I have someone that I've worked with and mentored in the past who now specializes in identity-based performance. You should talk to him because he's got some really interesting frameworks to coach you through. And I had literally just a year before started digging into the world of alter egos because I didn't start with that. It became this new thing that I discovered after starting to work with more and more high quality and elite athletes in my career 
they would talk about having a persona, an identity, an alter ego, like all these different words, a character that they would kind of step into when they would go out onto the field, the court, the ice, you know, the, the, like whatever. Um, and so that's how I got connected to Kobe. We got on the phone. Um, and actually we got on Skype is what it was back in 2003. Um, and started talking and he was unpacking it. And, and I said, yeah, you're going, you're, you're going through this ego death and we need to construct a brand new identity for you. Um, and the worst thing that you could do is hold on to this concept and idea of who you think Kobe is because that person isn't, he's not here anymore because of this experience. And that's okay because we can rebirth, we can have a rebirth. Like there's a brand new version of you, um, that we can take out onto that court. And it was just a couple of weeks before their spring or their, um, the start of the NBA season. So they were going into their, um, their camp, uh, at the, with the, with the Lakers. And so we, we spent that time and I was talking to him about identity and alter egos. And I said, just having a model in your mind for how you want to play on the court. Cause he was really more concerned about his play on the court. He's like, I can't control what's going to happen in the media and how they're going to view me and, and stuff, but I can control my career on the court and how I play. Um, and, and so I said, okay, now, and this goes into actually the process, like I talk about in the book, the method of how you get inspired by, you know, that mentor within that you want to bring. And like now just open up your eyes and pay attention and be aware of, you know, characters or people or things or animals that inspire you. And then we can go deeper on it. And so he did, and he was watching the movie Kill Bill and there's a, um, an assassin in the movie who uses a black mamba snake to assassinate people and kill them. And he, he was just in that moment, boom. He's like, that's what I need. I need to be just like a black mamba. In the moment where you mean when you were talking or when he watched when the movie and he said, no, this is my it's, it's rarely, it's rarely when I would be coaching someone, I'm going to ask you questions. And so, like, sometimes it happens where I'm like, you know, asking you questions about like, what's inspired you in the past? Like, is there any books that you like really love? Or is there movies that you really love? Is there a character that you, uh, is there an animal, um, et cetera, like all these different questions. And sometimes people go, oh my God, yes. And then boom, something clicks in their head. But a lot of times it happens while they're kind of out in the world and out in the wild. And, and so that's what happened. Kobe watches it, sees it and goes, that's what I need. And then intuitively he did the very next smart thing, which is he went and he started to research the black Mamba snake. And learn everything Because about black Mamba. And he knew everything about it. He knew more about the black Mamba snake than, you know, all the biologists on the planet who study snakes. Like he knew everything about it, its entire musculature, you know, how it moved, its, its small bone structure, you know, like how wide the black Mamba snake, you know, could open its mouth and just all these kinds of different things about it. Um, and the key with that is the reason you want to learn more about your source of inspiration It, it's, it continues to build story in your mind. Like it helps to, it helps to bathe your mind in the idea of that identity. And so that's how we started to continuously build out the black Mamba snake. And then we kind of, him and I talked about it and we started to build out the, the traits that he really, I want to isolate traits. I want to know like, what are the three or five max things that when you are embodying that character, 
what are the traits that it's bringing out of you? Because that this is what's key, Av. This this is what makes it. This isn't about. And even if it was you faking it, I don't care. Like, because you're faking something to try to become better. <laughs> you know, like I'm not saying that I'm gonna go out and start calling myself a grandmaster when I haven't achieved that status. But when do you become a grandmaster? Is it when you get it or when you start thinking the way a grandmaster does? True. 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 You become a grandmaster first in your mind and then you achieve it in the physical world. Now, I don't need to tell you that I'm a grandmaster, but in my mind, if I believe that I'm a grandmaster, then it's going to help me, hopefully, if I have the disciplines and the skills, because it's just, this does not. Having an alter ego doesn't mean that you can't go out and still work hard. <laughs> That's not what it is. I mean, Kobe's work ethic was legendary. Um, so anyways, but Kobe and I, we worked on his traits and his qualities that he started to bring out of himself onto that court. And um, yeah, so that's that's kind of the background and the story of how Kobe and I uh, worked together on that. Crazy follow-up to it though. Um, on the day that Kobe died in the helicopter, I was in San Diego getting ready to drive up to his house because him and I were going to be meeting the next day in Newport Beach because he wanted to bring the alter ego method into his Mamba Academy because he had a sporting academy that he was building out and he wanted my alter ego method to come in to the Mamba Academy so that we could build out, you know, you know, not just more Mambas, but more, you know, everyone else's own concept and, you know, alter ego and, and stuff. So yeah, it was pretty devastating. Um, we lost a good one. Um, and how did you learn, how did you met Cristiano and Rafael Nadal? Did they also have ego deaths issues? Um, well, so for, for Rafa, and again, I, I'm always careful because, um, I don't like to go too deep into like the, the psychological makeup of clients and stuff, right? Cause it's personal and, and everything, but you know, Rafa is uh, one of the nicest and kindest human beings. That's, he's just such an amazing person. And, but when you're playing competitive sport at that level, one of the things I talk about it in the book, um, this other tennis player that I worked with who was widely regarded as amazing, like really great skill, really great talent, but they were regarded as someone who should be winning major tournaments, but is not winning major tournaments. It'd be the equivalent of someone who everyone thinks has the capability to be a grandmaster, but they haven't achieved the status for whatever reason, or they're not winning tournaments or something like that. Um, and so with, um, with someone like uh, Rafa and then the person in the book that I shared, one of the things that can get in the way is sometimes your citizenship is what I call it, your citizenship qualities. The way that you sort of operate in society and with other people is you, maybe you're someone who really values fairness and, and justice. It's actually a core quality of many, many people. Like fairness and just, they believe in fairness, they believe in justice. Um, now, when you get into the competitive environment of business and sport, those two things can sometimes get in the way if you don't compute them properly in your brain. And so this is how it looks. You've got someone who is very skilled and very talented. They go out there and he's, they're playing tennis and they start out and they start defeating the other person easily, handily, like they're destroying them. 
Now, internally, because they value fairness and justice, they might start to feel bad internally. They don't recognize it consciously, but in unconsciously they do. And so then they start to take their foot off the gas a little bit. That's, you know, just a little phrase. Like they start to let up and they let that person get one point and then maybe two and then maybe three. And you know this as well, Av, that momentum is very dangerous for your opponent. When your opponent starts to get momentum, momentum creates confidence. And for people listening, like this is a formula for you. Just know this. If you're trying to get traction in any area of your life, this is a formula for you. Start to get momentum. Most people want to get confidence first. Don't. Don't go get confidence first. Get momentum first. Because momentum builds confidence. And confidence builds the final thing, which is at the DNA level, certainty. And when you've got someone who is not as good as their opponent, that has momentum and confidence, and then they get certainty that they can now compete with Rafa or compete with whoever that other competitor is, it's in their blood, man. It's in their DNA. It's in their muscles. There is a completely definitive and resonant belief. It's a knowing. I can win this. I can play with this person. And that's when the game has just been equalized. And so momentum plus confidence equaling certainty is is very powerful. So that fairness and justice thing was um, something that I would always look for and I still look for. It's one, of the, it's one of the first things I look for as to why someone who has phenomenal capabilities is not performing in competitive environments. And a lot of times it's because they are over-indexing on what fairness means in competition. So what I'd say to the people, and I'd say, I have it in the book, that, when you go out there and you compete, and if your mission isn't to destroy the opponent, you are actually robbing them of the opportunity of growth. And this, that's really important. Well, you're robbing them Creating of the, momentum. It's, no, it's the other way around. It's if I go out and, and you and I play a, a game of, of chess, I want to experience the best Avatic. Just personally, I do. And you'll destroy me because I'm, you know, I play it casually. I'm not as trained and skilled and developed as you are. I want to experience what it's like to play against someone like you. And the, because I get motivated by that. I get motivated by just getting clobbered by someone who's just immensely skilled. So, if you're someone who's immensely skilled and you don't go out there and try to destroy the other person, you're robbing them of the opportunity to see the gap in how much further they need to go to get to your level. That's not being very fair to them. By you going out there, playing hard, and then letting, um, letting off a little bit, that's you being very unfair to that person. And so I needed to reshift in their minds what fairness meant when they're in competition. Fairness in competition means to bring every single ounce of your capability into that performance so that the other person gets to walk away with all the data and information on what it's gonna take to get to your level. And just those small little conversations that I've had over my, 
19,000 hours of one-on-one coaching, just that alone, the 19,000 hours has been pivotal, <laughs> pivotal in the shifts and transformations of a lot of um, athletes. It's very unfair to do that to someone else. So that's the, that's the frame. But if, 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 if someone's alter ego is animal and they are competing, they are competing on a very high level, do I understand correctly is that that alter ego can be only a wild animal? No. Um, because again, it's, it's always your own meaning to it. So we all have different stories that we tell about objects and animals and characters and, and, um, so, and, and when we're telling ourselves the story about what that animal means, maybe those traits and those qualities that we're telling ourselves about that animal is exactly what we need. Like in the book, I talk about this one, uh, lady who runs a creative agency. Okay. Um, now she's from Germany and her father, her grandfather actually was a, a famous kind of explorer. And she lived in kind of like a, a wooded area, beautiful wooded area in Germany. And she always had this deep resonance with, um, a stag, like a male deer. Right. And like, it's, and when you actually know what a stag, like stags with their antlers, they'll fight off bears. They'll fight off wolves. Like everyone thinks predator and prey that it's always great to be the predator. Listen, there's some freaking powerful stories of prey that are absolute beasts in a battle. Like one of my favorite, my favorite animal on the planet is a, is a donkey. Um, I love donkeys, always have loved donkeys. Um, I grew up on a farm and ranch. We didn't have donkeys on the farm, but I love donkeys. And because the story that I have for a donkey, hey, when, you're, when you want to carry something over the highest mountain passes in the world, what animal do you hire? You don't hire a horse. You don't hire an ox. You don't hire any other animal. You hire a donkey mules. That's what carries things over mountains. They go to places no one else can. You know what else a donkey and a mule will do? They will stomp and kill cougars and mountain lions. They are the most terrifying little buggers to get into a fight with. That's what I, so that's actually a part of one of my alter egos. Um, it's actually a part of one of my alter egos as I see myself as an athlete, like, cause now, you know, I'm not, don't really compete in competitions anymore and stuff like I did when I was younger, but how I think of myself when I get into the gym, I'm just like, I am the guy who's just not going to stop. I'll continue climbing that mountain and all you other animals are not going to make it. I'll make it because I'm built to climb it. You're not built for it. I'm built for it. So her story, going back to the stag, her story, it's majestic, it's powerful, it stands its ground. Now that was important for her because she was, um, you know, we've all worked with, you know, those of business, we've worked with people who are web designers and stuff. And there's a concept in that world called scope creep. Even you as a coach, right? Like scope creep is sometimes when people want to get more from you than what they paid for. Okay. And so 
she was such a people pleaser that she would say yes, yes, yes. And now she's working 25 extra hours on a project that she's not getting paid for. And so this adoption of this new alter ego, which was the stag for her, was about her standing her ground. You know, like honoring the fact that her time is valuable. And so that stag stood at the entranceway to her schedule. It's really important. So that stag was there. And so anytime she was going into a negotiation or she needed to get back to her clients in an email because they wanted something more for her, that's when the stag would come in because that alter ego is there to protect her time. So like its application can go into like so many different areas. Like so many people get the idea that the alter ego is something that I'm going to embody all day long. It's everywhere all the time. No, it's in specific roles. It can be used like Kobe's. The Black Mamba came alive when he was on that court, only on that court. And then it could be coming in. So roles, it could be in situations. It can be in context. It can be in circumstances. It could be in, um, you know, areas that you go into. So like many people have now used the book to build the alter ego that when they sit down, like the chair that you're sitting in right now, to some people as a writer, that chair means something. It means that it's going to activate a certain version of you. And then, and it's that writer, it's that author, whatever that is. And then it's like, I'm just giving people this process of like, no, who is it that shows up there? Like which part of you you're going to be so inspired showed up that day. And the moment that you leave that chair, you're going to look back at that chair and say, I did it right today. Today, I did it right. Um, it's super powerful. I tell people all the time, you know, Av, where do you think the most honest place in your house is? This is going to change everything for some people that are listening. Where do you think the most honest place in your house is? Bedroom. Yeah, it is in the bedroom. There's a specific spot though, and it's your pillow. Wow. I tell everybody wow. all the time. Pillow, right. The pillow, right. Never, the pillow never lies. Because when you lay your head down on that pillow, every human being will take stock of their day. And they will either look back on it and go, why didn't I do X? Why didn't I do Y? Oh, I wish I would have said this to the person. I wish I would have made that move. Uh, like, why didn't I speak up? You know, why didn't I go over and say hello? Like, oh, man, I just, that was a grandmaster. I've wanted to meet this person forever. Why didn't I go over there? And you beat yourself up. Or the other side, you know what? I laid it all out on the line today. Like I crushed it. I didn't get the result that I wanted, but I showed up the way that I wanted to. So many people think it's about results and I do not care about the results as much. I care about, did you bring everything you could to that performance or to that, you know, experience that you had with your kids when they were screaming and yelling and you stayed calm and centered and were patient with them and you didn't engage with the rage and the anger that they had with more rage and more anger to only escalate the situation. No, you stayed calm. So I call it the smiling pillow effect. 
there is probably nothing more powerful for people to engage with as a concept in their mind is my metric is how many days can I get a streak of smiling pillows? When I'm laying with my head on the pillow, I'm smiling because I did it right today. That's the most honest place in every single person's home. And if I can do anything, that's my mission in life. That's my mission. My mission is to create as many smiling pillow days as I possibly can for humanity. Because if I can do that, then I've done something right with my life. And so that's why I share what I share. That's why it's important for me to share stuff that actually works, not invented shit from people who haven't been out there on the field with people in the battle, in the mud, under the white hot light of performance. That matters to me. That smiling pillow, I will steal from you and write an article about that. Of course, putting this dialogue there, that was very powerful. Yeah. Smiling pillow. Um, I started to use journaling after... um, uh, learning more about Brandon Burchard and his uh, peak performance book, started to do his app, mm-hmm. setting intentions and others. And at some point, I had, I had similar concept of that that saved me. As a CEO of Trust Mode, I had too many tasks. And I would come, look at my task, I would get crazy, like, where, what, ah, so much. Two things changed, my, changed me. I put on my desktop an image which says, one step at a time. And then uh, on my journaling in the morning when I write that, there is a question. Uh, what should happen at the end of the day that you felt it's a great day? And I answer always there, if I did my best. Yeah. I figure it out. I cannot control the outcome. I cannot know what will happen. But if I do my best, and if I do one step at a time, I have 12 big projects going, 50 tasks, just one step at a time, just doing your best, as best as you can, just do that. And even today, I didn't interview for, for a long time, and it's the first time after we restart the Trustmode podcast, I was like, oh, I'm going to interview Todd Herman, who has worked with such people. Yeah. And then I'm like, okay. I can do only one thing, just do my best. And this is uh, like doing my, yeah. do my best. It's not as romantic and it's not so clear as what you said. Smiling pillow. That's, that's so strong. Yeah. Well, you know, like Av, one of the things that I've learned over my coaching career and like even training and, and Av, like you do this brilliantly. Like you do, you've got just fantastic content and i mean you should be extraordinarily oh, proud of what you've done with chess mood like i i look at it and i think Thanks. that it's i think it's just outstanding cuz i know how hard it is to build stuff like that i mean i've built and sold three different coaching and training companies like i know you know the struggles the scrapes and the scars that you get along the way and and so um the one thing that i've learned though in coaching and training is how important it is to give people um, artifacts, totems, and um, objects to anchor an idea to. So that's why you're like, 
this is one of my favorite things. I just, even like right now I'm getting chills. I guess my, my heart starts going. Like when I start thinking about like tackling an idea. So when I find something that's an idea that has tremendous value, the one that you just talked about, the question of, you know, what could I do today that would make today a great day? It's a great question. Okay. And questions to the listener, they are the pickaxe and the shovel to mining the recesses of your mind. Ask yourself better questions. You're going to get better answers in your life. So I think about that question. Now, now I think about okay, in my head as a coach and a trainer so that I can really anchor the idea in people's minds. What's an object that I can anchor that question to? And then I just think about how do people live their lives? You know, da, 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 da. And that's how I get to, at the end of the day, we all lay our head on a pillow. And we're either going to be frowning and upset while our head's on that pillow, beating ourselves up. Like that destroys, it actually destroys me on the inside. It, and I'm not saying this because I'm in an interview. It's something that I feel every day. It's a part of how I have been built over time. My experiences in the past from, you know, um, being assaulted as a kid and stuff. I have extraordinary compassion for human beings. That's just one of my superpowers. And other people have other superpowers, but that's one of mine. And so when I know that a good person who's trying to do good things in this world is upset with themselves on that pillow, I just, I have to change that. I got to try and find a way to give someone a better idea. So the idea here though is I always want to try to find um, objects or artifacts or totems in people's physical world to help remind them of either the person they're trying to become or the life they're trying to lead or what's important to them. Because when you can start changing your environment and looking at your environment very differently um, or experiencing your environment very differently, those are the things that have some of the biggest impacts on the results that you get in your life. Environment is one of the most underrated parts of helping people make change happen. Um, it is such a powerful force. And, you know, I think uh, the more we can do to help shape better environments for people, then we're gonna have better results. This is what you just said about environment. I'm now writing my book, my first book about grand, my, my journey to Grandmaster, how from four years old, when my father left and went to the war, I managed to go there. Yeah. And I found there is one room one place where I sit, I start to write. Now, after reading your book, learning your yeah. works, I don't do at that place anything else. That place, that chair is only for writing. Wow. wow. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, that's powerful. One, uh, one question about uh, this. I used to have old triggers. I used to get into them. And I also used yeah. to imagine that I'm talking to people. And sometimes the second works better for me some some situations than the first. Yes. What's what's happening? Yeah, so I'm so happy that you brought that up. Um, are you familiar with Andrew Huberman? Sure. Yeah. So him and I have been going back and forth a bit on Twitter and, you know, in Twitter DMs and stuff. And, um, you know, to people who might not be familiar, Andrew Huberman has a phenomenal podcast called Huberman Lab. He's a, a neuroscience researcher in St at Stanford University and just really does an outstanding job of breaking down the biology and the science of, you know, 
why certain things are good for you. You know, why you should drink decaf coffee in the morning and not caffeinated coffee in, within the first 90 minutes of, of waking up and all these different things. Um, and so he just came out with a new podcast episode yesterday on visualization and mental imagery and um, about the kind of the science of it and, and all that stuff. Now, that's actually one of the things that scaled up my uh, peak performance company was in the late 90s and early 2000s, I was the first performance company to bring neuroscience researchers into my, uh, my business in our, in our training. And I started, because I really did feel like the world of psychology had a lot of bad ideas that weren't rooted in science. And so I went far more kind of scientific approach to things. And um, anyway, so I had mentioned to uh, Andrew in, um, when he was posting about it, I said, how much, how much research did you find around auditory um, visualizers? And it kind of, even the term visualization, it gives, you know, you know, you, the listener, the idea that you're supposed to be seeing pictures and movies in your own mind. There are some people's brains who are, who don't function that way. They have a very hard time seeing things in their minds, but they can hear things. Or there's some people, by the way, for memory recall, the most powerful uh, sense for memory recall is actually the olfactory part of the brain. Uh, sense of smell is, is actually the power, most powerful way to recall memory um, with people. Um, there's been phenomenal studies with people who have um, Alzheimer's and, you know, like... Wait, it's, it's, it's smell, seeing, and touch? Smell. Well, there's... there's there's touch, there's, there's sight, sound, smell, touch, and, um, what am I, and taste is the other, is the fifth. Okay. Smell is the strongest. Smell is the strongest for, <clears throat> for memory recall, for like past memories, especially like, um, memories from a long time ago, uh, as well. So even I do it, I have, I'll show you this. I have this very specific um, scent here in my office. Um, and, you know, I was teaching athletes this. How do you use that? Um, it, it's for creativity. So it's it's got a scent of like fig, which I, I, I love the scent of fig. Um, I also have some uh, aromatherapy stuff that is uh, like spearmint and peppermint are proven to sort of wake up the creative part of your mind as well. So like, um, yeah, orange blossom and, and whatnot. Yeah. Like there's all these different things. I mean, as someone who wanted to work with people on peak performance, I was looking for any little, cause when you get to the very, very top of, you know, the performance yeah. ladder, you're looking at every all, nuance is important. Every, every every little you're exactly thing. right. Yeah. You get it. I mean, that's why you're a peak performer. So sorry, I interrupt, interrupted you. I got very excited about that. <laughs> Continue, please, about uh, Huberman. Yeah. So so Andrew Ogren by and I said, hey, and he's and um, he's like, we didn't go into really that, but I was saying how um, one of the things that and you just to get to your point and what you just brought up that you hear things or your sense of self talk. So I call it fly on the wall thinking. So I love taking you. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to have, I'm going to shrink you down to a fly. All right. You're going to buzz in to the room where there's other grandmasters talking and you just got done playing in the tournament 
And now you're going to sit on the wall and you're going to listen to what these grandmasters are saying about you. What do you want them to be saying about you? Not, so you're not going in there to hear gossip. Again, the most important and hardest part of visualization, it's one of my frustrations with it. And you and I talked about this last week is that people say the word visualization as if it's easy for people to just go and do. No, it's like any skill. It takes tremendous practice. And it's because the human brain is not necessarily structurally built to help you visualize what it is that you want. But it is very easy to visualize things we don't want to have happen <laughs> because our brain indexes towards negativity. It does. It's because, and it's a protective mechanism. It was there so that when you and I are out walking from our cave and we see the bush rustle over there, we're like, oh, what is that? Is that a saber toothed tiger? And then a little bunny rabbit hops out, right? Instead. And I would say that most people's fears in life are bunny rabbits and not saber toothed tigers. There's a lot more of just bunny rabbits that are out there. So we're, we're just structurally built to kind of think negative. You know, Av, when you post a video on YouTube, there's a hundred comments on there. 99 are like, hey, thank you so much for bringing us out there. Thank you for interviewing Todd. Oh my God, this was amazing. I'm never gonna think about a pillow again the same way. And then one person says, oh, I couldn't stand listening to your voice today. Like, you suck. Like, why couldn't you have worn a blazer? Or why didn't you, like, all this kind of crap, right? And then, so you see 99 positive comments and this one negative one is the one that ruins your day. So it's just that, that negative way that our brain works of what we don't want to have happen. However, the best of the best know how to build the muscle of how to think about what it is that you want and then turning that into a very methodical process where you go into your own mind. I call it building your mental movie theater. And so it's one of the things that I built with people like Kobe. We built a mental movie theater in his mind. That's where you go into and you have this, what I call a holographic experience. So we don't just index towards seeing things happen. We can also use the other senses going back to hearing something. So now Avatech flies into the room, sits on the wall. And now what's the conversation you're hearing other grandmasters say about you? And one guy says, you know what's really intimidating about Avatech is he always has this extraordinarily calm demeanor about him. Like he's in stalking kill mode right now and you would never know it because it looks like he's the same way as when he played his first move. And then the other guy goes, oh my God, I never even thought about that. Damn it, you're right. And I have to play him next. Shit, I wish I really wish you wouldn't have said that because you're right. He, he's you just don't know because he, there's no there's no tell on his face that he's got. And then another guy jumps in and says, "Oh, I hear you've been talking about Avatech. You know what I think is one of the most underappreciated parts of his game is he has probably more moves that he uses to finish people off than most people have even seen be played by five grandmasters." And then the guy who's about to play you says, oh, wait, so now I have to worry about being attacked from 30 sides and not just two sides. And the guy goes, yeah, that's what makes Avatech so lethal. So anyways, that's another form and a way to help people 
think through visualization is be a fly on the wall. Listen to how other people talk about you. What do you want them to be saying about you? What do you want them to be saying about your behaviors, your habits, your way of being, um, how you show up in the world, their experience of you? Oh, you know what? I love what Abitech is. He goes out there and he destroys everybody. But the moment he leaves that board, he's one of the most generous. He's one of the most kind. He's one of the most helpful people. Like he actually went over to another chessboard afterwards and showed someone how to do the move he just did. Like he's literally trying to level other people up. And I heard him say in an interview once, it's because he only wants to play against the best within the best of the best. He doesn't want to get the best of someone. No, he wants to get the absolute best that's sitting inside of every competitor because he wants to grade himself not against someone's worst day, but he wants to grade himself against someone's absolute best day because his only goal in his world of chess is to be the best he can possibly be. And that includes improving himself every single day. That doesn't mean that he's going to win all the tournaments. He doesn't grade himself against that. He only grades himself against his performance and whether he leaves that chair knowing that he let it all out there. Yeah, absolutely. This is one of the things I always always tell to the students. Like, don't try to just how I'm going to win, how I'm going to do that. How can you perform at your peak? Because at the end, people have a chance there is mm -hmm. rating. And I'm keeping telling them, the rating you have, it's not your peak rating. The rating you have is the average of the days when you perform at your worst and the days when you perform at your best. Mm -hmm. But if you trick somehow yourself and you always perform mm -hmm. at the peak, you cheat at yourself at you, and you always pick, then yeah. there will be a huge difference. And this is what you try to do at, at the game. Not win your opponent, just do your best. Yeah. Can you focus on maximum? Can you just turn off everything else at maximum? Can you do something before the game that your yeah. brain works at the max speed? Focus on that thing. You cannot control will you win or not, but you can control if you can do your yeah. best now during that game. You can. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing too about ratings is don't forget chess player, that rating is not a rating of your present playing ability. That rating is a rating of your past playing ability. Wow, really wow, wait, wait, because... wait, wait. That was very strong. That was very strong. Say it again. Your rating is not yeah. what is your level? Your rating, your rating is not an indicator of your present playing ability. That rating is a rating of your past performances. So people love to take labels, slap them on themselves and say, I am this, I am a 4.5. I am a grandmaster and identities. Again, this has been my world for 20 plus years working with people on building alter egos. Identity is very powerful, but it can also be a trap. So be cautious about these labels and these numbers, you know, the number that's in your bank account, that is not an indicator of your present worth. That's just an indicator of your, your spending skills of your past, your saving skills of your past. And like, it's not you now, 
It's not you now. And that's important for me because I want anyone to know that at any one point in time, that there's any moment that an absolute peak you can come out of you. All of your capabilities can come out of you at any one moment in time. But if you said I'm a 4.3 or I'm a 4.5 or, you know, I am statements are very, very dangerous because you've now created an identity around it. You know, I, I said it to you, like, you know, for those of you listening, if you go to my website, toddherman.me, there's a very specific reason why in the header area of my website, it says, I coach, I build, I write, I speak. I don't say I'm a coach, I'm an entrepreneur, I'm an author, I'm a speaker. Those are all identities and labels. We are verbs, not nouns. We're verbs and not nouns. I coach. That's what I do. I coach. I build things. I build programs. I build businesses. I build software. I write. I take what I've learned by coaching elite human beings one-on-one. -on -one. And then I take that and I build out a program to, more, to help more people that don't have to invest the high dollar amount it is to work with me privately. So now I can talk to more people. And then I get information around that experience. And then I take it into its final form, which is I write about it. So I write a book and I speak on these topics. I'm verbs everywhere I go. I, I don't like to give myself a label of a type of noun necessarily. I have the role of being a dad, but I think of the verbing and the adjectives of being a dad way more than I ever think about the role of being a dad. Because at any one point in time, some, my businesses could get taken away from me to your point about outcomes. So it's not that you your identity. Is, yeah. It's not that Avatec is an entrepreneur. No, you are entrepreneurial. And you know what? You can be entrepreneurial anywhere inside of another corporation inside of another company inside of a friend's business because yours just collapsed and so he just says hey you're just unbelievably talented before you go off and whatever whenever you're going to go and try and figure out what your next thing is do you want to come in and, and work with me you can bring your entrepreneurial skills over there so your rating is your rating on your past it is not a label on your present or your future I have noticed all the time working with people, the identities they create, how it stays in front of them, and it and it doesn't allow them easily to get where they can. And one of the common things I'm hearing is this, uh, mostly about people not as young as me, uh, like they are 60 about. Yeah. Uh, they are not... They are, they are still beginners. There are lots of places to improve even their brain doesn't work as it used before. Mm -hmm. But they limit themselves saying, I'm old, so it's probably tough. So what's your advice? Because they are getting into this identity. I'm old. Me and, that, me and you, we know a person who is about, six, about 60, going to be soon. He has very sharp brain, very sharp. He's so tactics incredibly well, but it limits himself with this. I'm not young anymore. What's your advice on this? So the people who say to themselves, you know, I'm old, it's going to be harder for me. Um, 
I like telling people this one story about a program that I had online for many years called the Champions Challenge. It was um, a 60-day challenge for athletes, and it came out in 2008. And it was, to my knowledge, the first ever challenge uh, program that was on the internet. And it was every single day you were going to get a new little micro lesson to help you develop your inner game and to develop your mental toughness. Okay. And, um, I had read a bunch of books as probably you have with like content and copywriting and stuff. I'd read a bunch of books on, you know, how to write a headline and things like this. And a lot of them just didn't resonate with me. Again, I'm coming from the world of like peak performers and elite human beings and, and they love challenging themselves and, and getting better. And I just felt like a lot of the headline stuff that had been written was written for basically average human beings to kind of like bring in average people. And so I sat there and I said, you know what? I believe in this program and I believe in the idea of building a champion. And, you know, when you really think about someone who wants to be a champion, what what are some of their beliefs and attitudes about life? And so I knew what those were. So the headline on my page, and this gets back to that 60-year-old who thinks that it's going to be hard. My headline said, this will be the hardest thing you will ever do in your life. Dot, dot, dot. But knowing how to master yourself will be the greatest achievement you'll ever accomplish. Read on if you want to lead a champion's life. That brought in, it was a, that was a big headline in impact font. <laughs> um, and, and it's because when you think about, if I said, I'm going to give you the easiest way to level up people who are ambitious, uh, there's nothing motivating to me about easy because I know that my pursuits and the goals that I have in my day have, I'm, I'm trying to shape a different version of me by the goals and the choices and projects that I take on. And all of us pick up different tools and I'm going to pick up something that's going to carve me into a better version of me. And that typically means doing something very difficult and challenging because I know that the version of me on the other side of accomplishing that, achieving that, or going through, whether I achieve it or not, is going to be a, a really good version of me. I'm going to build some qualities and some traits and some skills and some abilities I didn't have before. And so those people who read that and said, and, and you know what they all do is they go, because when I said to you, just listen to this, this will be the most difficult thing you will ever do in your life, dot, dot, dot. But master, but knowing how to master yourself will also be one of your greatest achievements. When you read that, at any point in time, did you think to yourself, ah, that's bullshit? No, probably not. But that's because you know, yeah, because mastering me is hard. It is, I've tried it. I've done many things and trying to work on myself is very difficult. So What's important about that is so many things that we read nowadays, a lot of times we go, yeah, right. That sounds like crap. That sounds like it's phony. That sounds like it's made up or whatever. So I didn't have what I call mental opt-out. I didn't have someone mentally opting out going, prove it to me, Todd. What I need to prove for the rest of my little letter that I had there was, yeah, that 
trying to change yourself is really difficult. It's really challenging, you know, but there's such a beautiful part of that process. You get to learn more about yourself. You get to see just what you're made of. You get to test your capabilities. You know, you're someone who isn't just sitting on a couch somewhere thinking about it. You're doing it and you're doing it amongst a group of other people. And that's really motivating to be around other people who are doing things. And you get to hear their story. You know, the kid who comes in, he's got, he's got no legs and yet he's a, um, a high school wrestler because that, that was one of the kids. He had no legs and yet he's wrestling in competitions and winning. That's motivating. That challenges my sense of what I think I can do. So now going back to that 60 year old, I say to him, you know what? You might be right. I don't know. Maybe it is true that people who are older have a harder time with this, but I'll tell you what, we write articles all the time on chessmood.com. And I would love to write an article one day about you being 60 years old, committing to change your chess abilities. And that now three years later, you're one of the best players in your city or your town or your village or your country, or you just won an award. Like how many other people could you inspire because you actually took action on something that you want to do? Cause you wouldn't be talking to me if you didn't want to do this. So you can either bring excuses to the game or you can bring an intention to the game. It's your choice. Because last time I checked, you're probably going to be living the next three years anyway. Do you plan on being 63? Yeah, I plan on being 63. Okay, great. Let's start building the version of 63 that you're going to be inspired by. And maybe other people get inspired by as well. That's an option. Which one do you want? Nice. Very, very good one. Yeah, so... I want to challenge people to live to the vision of what they know is capable of themselves. Because I, I feel like that's the, that's the only path forward anyway, because if they don't live to the words, the vision of what they really feel like they could possibly go out and do, they're not going to have many smiling pillows. Very, very strong again. Uh, there, are, there are lots of stuff on the internet and unfortunately now there is this chat GPT that are using all this stuff when most of them when it's come about peak performance is not written by experts so there are lots of wrong advice be mm -hmm. it is how to become a better chess player better soccer player or how to learn about visualization yeah there are lots of stuff because the real people who knows, who work with top athletes, most of the time they are busy doing the actual job and little advice there. Um, yeah. What are, who are the people? What are the sources that you recommend to follow and to learn from? So, yeah, you're right. I mean, and it's, it's hard to decipher, um, you know, what information is, is, good is true. Um, I always encourage people to, when you find someone's content or whatever that resonates with you, a follow-up question is to find out, do they actually work with someone one-on-one -on, -one on this topic, whatever it might be. And so 
a good example, like just not even in the world of like mental game world is someone who teaches marketing, you know, so they're someone who talks about marketing or, you know, like how to build a social media presence online and stuff like that. Well, there are a lot of people who can go do it for themselves, but that's, I'm not inspired by someone else's story of how they got to the top of the mountain. I'm inspired when they went back down the mountain and they were able to bring other people up the mountain, not using the exact same path that they did. Because just so you know, everybody, my path to whatever success I've had in my life cannot be replicated perfectly. You cannot do it the way that I did it. I've got different attributes. I've got different, I'm a massive people person. Like <laughs> I could do calls like this all day long and I would not lose one ounce of energy. I wouldn't be craving water, coffee, or food because I love being around human beings. I get energy from it, right? Whereas someone else who feels like they're a little bit more introverted, that sounds like it would be torture to them. Wait, to spend all day on the phone or on Skype or on an interview with someone? That sounds torture. So I built my businesses my way. I say all this because when you are evaluating other people, so it's great that Avatech, has become a grandmaster. Has he helped other people do it? The answer is yes. He's a practitioner. So I'm looking for people who are practitioners, who are actually doing the work. Okay. So I mentioned Andrew Huberman earlier, Huberman lab. Now he's a researcher. Um, the one thing that separates him away from other researchers that I've found is he really likes to turn his research into something that's practical and pragmatic. Now, Andrew Huberman doesn't have a uh, human performance agency yet. If he did, then I would give him multiple gold stars above his head for someone that I'm going to almost take their word as gospel um, because he hasn't actually implemented some of these ideas on the field. He's unpacking research that's done inside of laboratories, you know, hermetically sealed environments. Some, and, and there's a lot of nuance that can get lost in those worlds. So my point is that when you do find someone that you resonate, go deeper. Like, does that person have an agency? Does that person work with people one-on-one? -on -one? Are they helping people implement these ideas every single day? Because I can tell you, you know, all these people who talk about visualization, this visualization, that it's, and they say, you know, you just got to visualize. I know that they haven't actually tried to build someone's mental movie theater with them. They haven't actually gone through the painstaking process of encouraging someone through the very hard times that happen in the first few weeks when the person has not getting no results with it. They're finding it very, very hard to do it. So you know what I would do, Av, if I was coaching you, you know, I, we talk about your mental movie theater this week. I give you a couple of things to do um, before our next call. On our next call, I would say, hey, Av, did you have a hard time with the visualization that we did last week? And before you answer, just so you know, it's very common because visualizing is a very challenging task and it takes a lot of practice. I'm doing that because I want to make you feel better about the fact you didn't get a very good result last week while you were doing these things. And so that's my problem with people who are not practitioners is they say all these platitudes. They make it sound really easy. You try to do it. And then you don't get the same result as you think other people are getting. And then you feel stupid. 
oh, well, everyone says it's so easy and I can't do it or I can't figure it out. Maybe there's something that's wrong with me. And then you quit on the process of developing yourself and there are more people lying on the heap of self-development that quit before ever reaching someplace they wanted to go to, but it was because they were fed cotton candy. Cotton candy looks great. I would love it if it was nutritious, but it's not. It tastes sweet and it doesn't satiate the appetite. I like to give people meat and potatoes. It fuels the body. It doesn't look sexy, but it works. And so that's why I don't have, you know, I am a little bit more of a, let's call it a pebble in my industry's shoes. I don't play well with other people who are influencers and who just say lots of platitudes because I come back with them with data science and 30,000 plus hours of working with people one-on-one -on -one or in group or speaking on stages, 26 years working with the most elite people. A lot of this process is, is helping and encouraging people to keep with it um, and then delivering other nuance. Visualization, for example, not just about seeing pictures. You can hear things. You can smell things. You know, you can feel things. One of the worst things you can do in visualization when you're starting out is to not have the objects with you. If I'm going to encourage anybody here that's listening um, with Av and I, if you're going to go through the process of visualizing yourself playing a game, put a chessboard in front of you. Hold the queen in your hand. Hold the knight in your hand. Hold a pawn in your hand. Feel it. Do it with your eyes open. Don't close your eyes. Visualization doesn't demand that you have to close your eyes. That's a complete falsehood. You can visualize in your mind's eye with your eyes open. Closing your eyes shuts off 70% of the processing of your brain because 70% of your brain is dedicated to processing the visual cortex part of your brain. That's why for anyone who's tried to meditate in the past, when you close your eyes, you feel like your brain just lights up and you're like just talking and there's so much activity. Yeah, because the brain lights up. It's trying to find other things to be doing because you just shut off your eyes. You can meditate with your eyes open. Look at the very top pinpoint of the queen and just stare at it and meditate. That's a completely healthy way to do it. Tell me why I'm visualizing much, much better when I am walking and I'm walking on a fast speed. Well, um, a lot of this would probably come down to, again, it's, it's nuance. Av. Uh, have you ever been diagnosed with like ADD or some sort of neurodivergent thing like dyslexia? Like I'm dyslexic and I'm ADHD. Okay. So one of the things for me, you know, when someone says, okay, go sit in a quiet spot and light a candle and, you know, shut down the lights and meditate. For someone like me, my body is vibrating <laughs> because it, my meditation is typically instigated by motion in the body. So, you know, when you're moving, it's, um, it's almost like a pacifier to the brain, you know, like, um, those little pacifiers that you give a baby to suck on, you know, to stop it from crying or to soothe itself. Right. Yeah. 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 So, um, naturally, a baby would suck its thumb. In fact, if you look at a baby that's in the womb, the very first thing that a baby will do to calm itself in the womb is suck its thumb. The hand is a natural pacifier. It's a natural relaxant to the human brain. So an athlete who's competing 
um, maybe a hockey player. Um, I always tell all my athletes, and not even athletes, CEOs, entrepreneurs, anyone, a chess player, have a ball with you, something that you can bounce or um, a stress ball, something that you can pass back and forth. Because when you keep your hands busy, it relaxes your brain. And so if you're trying to think about your competition, just throw a ball back and forth, bounce a ball against the wall. Because it goes, it almost gets you into a meditative practice, okay? Calms yourself down, allows you to think more clearly, more calmly, and more directionally on what it is that you want to try and do. So by you going out and walking, Av, you're, you've just found a way that works really well for you to get you into kind of a flow state of thinking. So there's a lot of, mm. there's a lot of factors that are going on um, that help you. Um, the other side of that too is you also might be going out with the intention of thinking about your game. And that's really important. You're just not going out for a walk. You're going out for a walk and think. That's what I call it. A walk and think. So I'm going to go and walk and think about my game. And because your hands are moving, your arms are moving, your legs are moving, it allows you to use this holographic world that you can build in your mind a lot more easily than just trying to lock yourself in a room. Now, having said that, there's other people that can totally excel by going and sitting calmly in a comfortable chair in a dark room with a candle. For some people, that works brilliantly. But it's not one size fits all. With, with playing with ball back and forth, is it, is, it, is it the same? Like some, especially soccer coaches, they are chewing a gum? Yeah. Well... Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm, I'm a, <laughs> all my friends know me as if you ever need gum, ask Todd, because I have bubble gum at all times. I have like, you know, dentine and other things. Yeah, my kids love gum as well. We have bubble blowing competitions and stuff in our house. Um, but yeah, so the, the interesting thing about the mouth and the jaw, um, you cannot get into a flow state or the zone if you have your teeth clenched. So like having your mouth closed and your teeth clenched, you can't do it. There's so many nerve endings that sit inside of your jaw and they run up in behind your forehead. And so, you know, I don't know if you've ever gotten stress headaches in the past, but a lot of times stress headaches are because you're tense and you're clenching your jaw or you're grinding your teeth. And so that creates tension headache up here. It feels like it's a migraine. Um, so one of the first biological things I'll you know, teach someone about when it comes to getting into the flow and zone state is keep your mouth open and relaxed. Like practice keeping your mouth open. <laughs> I'm looking like a goof by opening up my mouth so wide, but you know, relaxing it. If you look at the most famous photos of Michael Jordan as he's flying through the air dunking, what is he doing? Mouth is open, tongue is out. Now, he didn't know that that's what he was supposed to be doing. He learned it over time you know, mouth is open, you know, tongue is out. And again, it's natural for an athlete, you're breathing heavily, but keeping your mouth open helps with that. Chewing gum, you know, helps with that. Bouncing the ball, like all those things. Again, they're just pacifiers for the brain. They're relaxants for the brain. Todd, I just asked you a question about gum. And even there, you told me so many new things. 
and just about 10 minutes before you you told that you can talk to me like 20 hours and you don't leave any energy if you have a tea please get in comfort i'm not going to leave you from here i'm going to ask you so many questions now man uh okay jokes aside uh yeah let me paraphrase the question where i want to hear to hear answer who are the people you are following when it comes about peak performance who whom you read whom you follow so I'll give you a few people to, uh, to look up. One of them isn't necessarily someone on peak performance, but it's on, I think, thinking properly. His name is Richard Wiseman. He's um, uh, a Brit. Great books. He's got a book called The As If Principle. He's got many books. And um, The As If Principle is a great book to go along with The Alter Ego Effect, by the way. Um, but there's a lot of strategies that Richard shares that are about what I call an outside in approach. So we've been talking about mindset and inner game work and stuff. And you know, how, you know, when do you become a grandmaster? Is it when you actually get it or when you start to believe it and behave that way and think that way in your mind, right? Well, I'm, and we talked about the pillow and I'm all about objects and things around you. So Richard does a great job of dispelling a lot of bad ideas in the world of psychology. And he takes the approach of telling people with lots of examples, ways that you can improve your life by changing your behavior. A good example. So you were talking about journaling before in the importance of journaling. Okay. Um, and you know, gratitude journaling is something that people talk about. I don't have a gratitude journal. Well, you know what? There's an actually a more powerful way that's been proven to give you a better result than gratitude journaling and everyone can do it and it's free and you don't have to buy it on Amazon or anything like that. Smiling. Smiling. So even if you don't feel like smiling, if you smile and you hold it for 30 seconds, a minute, three minutes, it is impossible for you to not feel better. Cause that's fundamentally what you're trying to do with the gratitude journal is to make yourself feel a certain way, but you can smile. And I'm not saying you don't gratitude journal, but if you gratitude journaled and you smiled. And so, um, anyway, I love Richard Wiseman's work. Um, Stephen Kotler, um, uh, Stephen Kotler from, uh, the flow research collective. Um, he does a lot of great research on it as well. They've got some good stuff. His former partner, Jamie wheel, um, W H E A L he's at the flow genome project. He does a lot of great stuff on flow and peak performance and, and mindset as well. Um, you know, I mean, I could go on and on with like lots of other different, I mean, I've got some people that I'm mentoring, um, Cassidy Preston in the hockey world does a great job of mental game coaching and peak performance for, for hockey players. And so those are, those are some examples, but, um, I, I particularly really do love Richard Wiseman's uh, work because it maps very much on uh, my pathway of how I've helped people. You know, even though I'm talking about mental game work and inner game work and stuff, very few times do I ever want to make an issue or a challenge your mental game. I, there's a few things that we could do behaviorally that we could that could shift your performance, and uh, so Richard's stuff is really great. Wow, Todd. Uh, I don't remember who last time gave me so much information in this amount of time. 
I cannot find the correct word for English to express my gratitude for your all time, not just what you shared now, but all the times that you have spent researching, reading books when no one was paying you, no one was telling you you were doing that, mm -hmm. that years of years of years of things. And now you can share all that stuff, man. Very, I'm very, very grateful for everything. I'm going to write articles. I'm going to to steal from you that smiley pillow, and I'm <laughs> looking forward in the future to have you more in our podcast and have them talk to you more. Thank you very, very yeah. much. I'd I'd be happy to come back, Avatek. Um, I love what you guys are doing. Um, I love your guys' world, and uh, yeah, if people want to reach out and ask me more questions, you know, I'm on social media. My home plate on the internet is uh, toddherman.me, but you could find me, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, no matter where you go, I'm kind of there. Thank you very much, Todd. Wow. How many techniques and nuances are there that we can use to enhance our peak performance? If you got interested in creating your alter ego, in his book, Todd goes into detail and explains the step-by-step -step process of how to do that. I have read it. It's incredible. The book and the alter ego effect itself. You will like it. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe. Until next time, my friends. Keep the Cogra, constant growth, and the right mood. It is what generates your right moves. See ya.